Hey everyone, and welcome back to the one and only Backpack Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Talent Development. I'm your host, Danielle. Let's hop right into the show. If you ask me, today's guest has some achievements that are pretty out of this world. Not only is he a research associate professor of physics and astronomy at Northwestern University, but he also serves as the associate director of Sierra, the University Center for Interdisciplinary Education and Research in Astrophysics. His research includes gravitational wave astrophysics, cosmology, binary star evolution, and so much more. And when he's not conducting research, you can find him writing for the science blog, Write Science, or maybe even giving a lecture at Chicago's Adler Planetarium. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Shane Larson. Shane, thank you so much for coming on as our special guest today. To get us started, I'm wondering if you can tell us about your pathway and how you got to where you are today. Pathways are weird because we all have influences on our lives that are things we've sometimes thought about and things we don't realize. Um, and, and the things that happen to you, I think, in your life on your way to your ultimate career are very varied, and but they all ultimately play a role in what you do. So I've had a very long and winding path. Um, I've always known I was going to be a scientist. When I was wee, I wanted to be an astronaut. Right. And so, you know, that kind of was, you know, I'm heading towards space one way or the other. Um, but at a very young age, um, I was exposed at the right time to Cosmos by Carl Sagan. And I think that pretty much cemented my future at that moment in time, just because it really just kind of overwhelmed me with this whole, you know, the universe is a big place and we're a part of it. And it's kind of cool to imagine what you might do. Um, and so early on, when I was in elementary school, that happened. But by the time I went to college, I wanted the astronaut thing had taken over. <laughs> and so um, I started out in, uh, actually in engineering. I was going to be a mechanical engineer because in those days, the space shuttle program was at the height of its program. Um, it was, and the way to get on the space shuttle was to build an experiment. And when they asked who needed to run the experiment on the space shuttle, you point it yourself. And they're like, okay, you be an astronaut, right? So that was called mission specialist. And that's what I was going to do. And I took an astronomy class, which was taught by a physics department. And I mean, literally within the first three days, I was like, oh, yeah, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. So I switched to physics. And now I've been in physics ever. Um, but I've done a lot of different things. Um, when I was an undergraduate, you know, one of the things today is, you know, students, we encourage you to get involved early in research and kind of what, what scientists do professionally in part of their careers and start exploring that early on um, so that you can see if this is the life for you. And so I certainly did that when I was in college, um, but I did a lot of different things. So I originally worked in plant ecology and range science. So we did things like, um, you know, we'd go out to the forest, we'd throw down a giant hoop, we'd cut off every piece of grass inside the hoop and weigh how much it was so we could figure out how much nutritional value is there in the grass for cows and deer and elk and stuff like that. Um, but then I switched to biophysics and I did laser biophysics for many years. Um, we sh shot protein molecules with lasers and watched them unfold and then watched them fold back up again. So it was really kind of cool. Um, and, and, and now I study black holes and gravity, right? And so what I would say is one of the funny things about my pathway is that I look at things I do today. I look at papers on my desk. I look at ways I organize information. I look at ways I write programming. I look at math that I know. And I learned all of that doing those things that aren't, aren't the physics I do today. And so pathways are varied, but everything you learn and everything you use, I think, is, is, makes you into the person you are today. 
That's very reassuring to hear, especially as a senior in college, because I have no idea what I'm doing right now. <laughs> right. I will tell you a story about my senior year. So so I have lots of interests, right? And I'm one of the great things about physics is physics is such a broad discipline that we encourage our students to um, uh, engage in their interests no matter what they are. And so, you know, I, I fly high-altitude balloons. I play with submarines. I do all kinds of weird stuff that's not astrophysics. But one of the things I've always loved since I was a kid was cartography. Right. And so when I was uh, when I went to college, I was like, man, I am going to take the highest level cartography course they have. So I went to the catalog and I figured out all the prerequisites. And my entire undergraduate career, I took every set of classes I needed to to get me to the cartography class. Right. And I get to my senior year and, you know, your senior year, you don't want to you want to take it easy because you're tired of school. and You want to go play Frisbee and stuff. Right. So I had this awesome schedule. It was easy to deal with. And the cartography class was right across from the last physics class I needed. (laughs) I was so upset because that last year. I never got to take that cartography course. But, but you know, I took tons of geography and map interpretation and, and all of that sort of stuff is actually really kind of interesting because today, the kinds of astrophysics I do, we're mapping the universe. And so lots of things I feel like I learned trying to get to that cartography class, I use in some kind of oblique way today, even in my physics research. So it's it's kind of kind of interesting what your undergraduate career does to you based on those those choices you make, right? Yeah, that's really cool. Well, one thing you mentioned earlier was black holes. And obviously, we're in this pretty cool time because we just saw the first image of the black hole. Um, how excited were you when that image came out? And what were your initial thoughts about that? I have lived through a transition in the astronomical community. When I was in elementary school, we knew people talked about black holes, but I would say most, most astrophysicists weren't absolutely certain they existed. Okay. And in the time that I've been training to become a professional astrophysicist, we have evolved in terms of the kinds of observations we can make. And we see lots of things going on in the universe, which can only be explained by black holes. And so in just the kind of 20, 30 years I've been a professional astronomer since I went to graduate school, um, astronomers have kind of made this about face. And they now firmly believe, I think most of us, that black holes do exist. And and for most of of that time, and even still today, almost everything you hear about black holes is not an observation of a black hole itself. Right. It's looking at other things in the universe and watching them get messed up and saying, wow, what could cause that must be a black hole. Right. And so so today, like in the last three years, what I work on, which is gravitational wave astronomy and the the result that you just pointed to the event horizon telescope picture. Right. Those are for the first time really scientific observations that are about the black holes themselves. Not looking at stars and watching them get torn apart, not looking at gas and looking at it, making it, watching it get hot and make x-rays, right? We're making observations that are properties and behaviors of the black holes themselves. And that is way cool because when I went to graduate school, I, you know, that's what I went to do. I went to graduate school to study black holes and it was a completely theoretical science. You do lots of stuff on pen and paper, like the stuff you see here on my desk. You do lots of stuff on computer codes. You study, you know, general relativity and all these kind of esoteric mathematical approaches because they're complicated objects. Um, and, but, but never that thing you always think science is built around, which is 
theory and simulation coupled with observations and experiment. And, and finally, just in the last three or four years, we've transitioned into really the way science works, where you have theory on one side and experiment on the other, and we're putting them together. And that, that's just kind of one of the most stunning things to see in science, because it's the way you're taught how science works. But, you know, you, it's either usually that way or it's not. You, you very seldom get to live through that moment where science dramatically changes. And that's just been awesome to see. I really like that. Why is it even important to study space and to study things like the stars and planets and black holes? You know, some people might say, look, we live on Earth. Why do we care about what's out there? So I have lots of different answers for that, but let me give you two. Okay. So, so the first one is the, the, the kind of, let's talk about, call it the human philosophy answer, right? Which is the universe is a really big place. And when you think about us as humans, we're really just a very small part of the universe, right? The universe is ginormous beyond the ways we can, we can say we understand it, but we really don't. It's far outside our everyday experience. But, but when, when confronted with that scale of things, I think it's only natural for us as humans to look inward and ask all those really hard questions that we're always fascinated by, which is where did we come from and why are we here? And, you know, those kind of existential philosophical things. And in, in, in our cultures, those questions often are relegated to faith. And, but they're also questions that we can answer on a scientific basis. And, and so it's just, it's just a science and astronomy more than any of the other sciences is just a different way of asking those questions humans have always asked for all the 50,000 years that, that we've been on this planet, right? So, so that's, that's the, that's kind of the philosophical side. I would say from the practical side, which is, you know, why should I invest in big space experiments instead of feeding orphans? Well, spending money on science and art, anything that keeps people engaged in becoming the best citizen of the planet they can helps those problems that we're so worried about. It's not that we're ignoring the people who need really help. We're helping because I'm keeping you engaged. People look at the cost of something like the Hubble Space Telescope, right? It's a billion dollars, whatever it costed, right? We didn't take a billion dollars and strap it on a rocket and send it into space, right? We spent that billion dollars right here on Earth. We spent it on the people who built the telescope and, and the, the truck drivers who drove all the equipment across the country and all the people who are supporting the Hubble Space Telescope right now. And they're taking that money that we spend on space and they're going home and they're paying for their kids to go to college and they're supporting their parents who are in nursing homes, right? That money's getting spent on Earth. And so it's, it's never a waste in the way that the sound bites treat it like it's a waste. Um, it's, it's a necessary part of the human endeavor, but it's actually helping society move to the future in very real ways that I don't think we always think about. I think that's a good point. It actually reminds me of the last podcast I was telling you about with Dr. Ditko. And he mentioned this idea of civilian science and how it's important to him that the research and projects he works on also positively impact society and helps to improve and educate the community. Is that something that resonates with you as well? Yeah, so, so I, so my core research is in gravitational astrophysics, which we've talked about. Um, I, as a professor, I do lots of teaching, training the next generation of students who are cruising around here. Uh, but a big, a big part of my professional activity is also what I call 
what is as a field is called science communication. I spend a lot of time facing outward, talking to people, um, talking to prospective students, talking to high schoolers, talking to teachers, um, just people who aren't part of our community here at the university. And, and I think that activity is so, so, so important. Um, because, as you and I were just talking about, you look at the world today and there's a lot of stuff going on and there's a lot of problems. And, and the point is, is that the way to solve problems is through critical thinking and getting data so that we actually understand the problem so we can actually do something productive to solve it. And, and the brain trust, the people who have spent their, dedicated their lives to understanding how to solve problems are the people at universities. It's the scientists and the engineers and the professors in English and the folks in sociology and the folks in communications and, and psychology, right? All We've dedicated our lives to understanding how do you look at problems, no matter what they are, figure out what's really going on, and then come up with some approaches to work on it. And if we, as the members of the university community, don't spend time out among the society that's supporting us, what are they investing their time in, Right? This is why we do what we do. We do what we do to help the world. And so we got to go out and tell people about what we're doing. I go out and I talk to people about black holes. Do they? Yeah, they love thinking about black holes. But in the end, if I spend a night talking with, you know, a group at a library about black holes, they ask me lots of questions. And those questions eventually evolve into other things like, what about the energy crisis? And, you know, do you think we'll really have electric cars for everyone? And, you know, do we have to worry about the food production change, right? They, they get trust by interacting with people and talking with people in ways that they can understand. And eventually the things they're really worried about come out. And those are the things we need to be talking with everyone about. Because the truth is, you're not going to solve problems unless we work on them. And the people who spend their lives working on them are the people who have something to contribute. So we have to build that trust with the rest of society if, if that's going to happen. So, so I do a lot of that. And I think it's really, really important. And, and we as professors, more of us need to be doing it. And you as students, you should be looking at your future careers and saying, wow, I've, I've become a unique person who's capable of solving some big problems. And one of my responsibilities as being one of the, the, the people who's been trained to solve problems is to make sure I go out and try and help solve problems, right? That's the best we can ask for of anything you do when you come and spend your four years with us here and then, and then you go out and you become a productive, awesome member of society, right? Make sure you go out and do the best that you can do, right? There's this famous quote, right? I can't do all the good that the world needs me to do, but the world needs me to do all the good that I can do. And I, I really think that's true for every one of us who spends time inside the walls of these universities. That's a really great quote. I like that. I'm definitely going to have to save it for later. But switching gears a little bit, you are the Associate Director of Sierra. Can you explain a little bit about what the mission is and some of the work that you do here? Um, so this is a, uh, a multi-department, multi-college center at Northwestern. So it's called Sierra. So that's the Center for Interdisciplinary Exploration and Research in Astrophysics. So just like SHIELD, right? It's a big mouthful to say, but you just call it Sierra, right? But, but one of the things that's awesome about astronomy and astrophysics is that more than almost anything that goes on, except maybe engineering, um, you need to have lots of different in 
inputs to try and understand what's going on out there in the cosmos. So if you're interested in life on other worlds, you need people who know stuff about chemistry and people who know stuff about biology and geology and people who know stuff about stars and how planets form and, you know, all of this sort of stuff. It, that's the I in Sierra, the interdisciplinary bit. And so it's, it's a absolutely fantastic center to be a part of because the things we think about and the different people you talk to who aren't expert in the things you're expert in is remarkable, right? Every day is a new adventure because you're like, wow, I don't know anything about geology, but I'm going to talk to some geologists because we need to know this to think about exoplanets. Um, I work in, uh, in gravitational wave physics. And so you may know a couple years ago, we uh, saw two neutron stars collide. They made this giant gravitational wave signal. And so the gravitational physicists were really excited. But then 4,000 professional astronomers around the planet also looked at it with their telescope and wrote a paper with us. Um, but then the chemists are involved because these neutron stars make all that stuff on the periodic table that, that you and I learned when we were you know, first in, in chemistry class. And so it's, it's, it's just constantly this remarkable whirlpool of different people and different talents and different ideas and different disciplines that are always swirling together in virtually everything we do here in Sierra. And so it's really a remarkable place to work. And, and that's what our job is, to bring those people together so we can solve problems that you can't solve on your own. We're all in this together. All in this together. Yeah. It's a good way to be, right? I think one of the most pernicious myths in science is what I call the myth of the lone genius, right? We when when you learn about the history of science, you hear about a few names, right? Edwin Hubble, Galileo, Albert Einstein, Henrietta Swan Leavitt. Um Jocelyn Bell, right? All of those names are people associated with the biggest discoveries in science. But the truth is, none of us do science in a vacuum. And I think that's probably true of every discipline, right? We all have colleagues we work with every day. When we get stuck, we go talk to the people in the office next to us. Our students have brilliant ideas that lead to really awesome discoveries. It's, it's a communal endeavor. And, and I think one of the things that, that I appreciate the most about a place like Sierra is we just right up front recognize that. We say, this is what we're all about. And so it's, uh, it's just kind of part of our philosophy and our culture that we try and embrace. So another thing I wanted to talk about is the last Avengers movie, Endgame. I'm not sure if you saw it. I did. Obviously, it dealt a lot with the idea of time travel. What are your thoughts about the film's portrayal of the science and physics behind that? So the study of time travel is an actual topic that we think about. Okay, so the discipline I'm in, gravitational physics, this time travel in the context of general relativity is something that we actually think about. And that's because when we, when we think about the universe, okay, the universe has some underlying structure that everything's built on top of. And we call that space-time. It's the fabric of reality. What is space-time? Well, it's not something tangible. It's not like paper or wood or carpet, right? But, but it is nonetheless the superstructure of the universe. And it has properties. It can bend and take shape. And so even if you've never studied general relativity or space-time, you're used to the idea because you've probably heard the term gravity well or gravitational well. That's, that's completely science fiction speak for what we study in general relativity, which is you can bend space-time. Um, and so, so time, is, time is very integrated with our ideas about the structure of the universe. And so for the last, I would guess, 
well, at least 30 or 40 years, we have often pondered the question of what does nature really think about time travel? Is it forbidden? Is it not forbidden? Can, can all these conundrums that happen in the movie really, really happen or be undone? Right. And, and, and I would say the answer to that is we've learned a lot. We know some things, but we actually don't know for sure. <laughs> and, and that's because we actually still don't understand what the difference between time is. Right. We treat the fabric of the universe as if it's one thing, space time. And we say space and time are no different than each other, but they are. And the reason I know they are is because in space, I can go any direction I want. I can go to the front or I can go to the back. But in time, so far as we know, I can't. I can only go to next Tuesday. I can't get back to last Wednesday, right? We're all time travelers. You and I right now are speeding towards next Tuesday, okay? But for whatever reason, we haven't, we, we, we haven't seen in nature, we haven't figured out that you can go back. In, and so what we would like to know is, is that a law of nature? Or are we just not clever yet, right? And so, so these things that you see happen in movies, very often they are not purely scientific, but they're often rooted in some scientific idea that we have about how could you go back or how could you go forward. And so this idea of it being connected to quantum world, the quantum mechanics of the universe, is, is really where the frontiers in gravity are right now. The reason we don't understand gravity well is because at the microscopic, at the quantum level, we don't know what space and time are all about. And so that's where all of that physics is probably hiding, right? So, so people do think about this. People write PhD theses about this. People write papers about this. There are legitimate scientific investigations that can be done. There's legitimate simulations, and people study this. And so if, if you or someone wants to do your PhD thesis on that, you let me know. <laughs> I got some projects for you. <laughs> Will do. But that actually kind of lends itself to my last question, which is what questions about the universe keep you up at night? Like when you're laying in bed, what's something that you're like, oh, I really want to find the answer to this? I, um, I don't work in astrobiology, but I think the question about life elsewhere in the universe is the one that I think the most about, other than kind of questions about the big problems we face on this planet, climate change and all that. But, but, but if, I, if I just think about out of my pure curiosity – what would I like to know the most? I would really like to understand the propensity of life in the universe. And the, the reason for that is there's kind of two extremes. One is what we call the rarity hypothesis, the idea that it is entirely plausible that Earth is the only place there's life in all the cosmos or our solar system. Um, and if that were true, it would be a staggering result. Right. It would really have to give all of us pause to think hard about the way we think about not just ourselves, but all the other life on this planet. And what do we do in terms of stewardship and protecting our legacy and imagining what the future of this planet is a billion years from now? Right. I think if we were the only life in the universe, we would have to think hard about what we really feel about that. The other the other hypothesis is what we call the hypothesis of mediocrity, which is. It means entirely possible that there's life everywhere that is plentiful. And, and I also like to think about that. And in fact, you can convince yourself sometimes very easily that there are millions of planets with dinosaurs on them, right? But, but I think in a very similar way, that also forces you to think hard about the way we view ourselves in the universe. It kind of removes from us that 
kind of conceit that we as humans have that we are special somehow if we are only one of many. Um, I think it, it also forces you to think hard about how we live our lives and how we conserve life here on earth. Because even if we are one of many, we, we are going to be unique somehow in the way that we as individuals are unique somehow. And so how do we, how do we present ourselves to the, the universal community that's plausibly out there and, 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 and say, yes, hi, we're, we're, we're neighbors, but we're valuable. <laughs> right. Um, and I think that that kind of deep philosophical thinking is why, why I'm attracted to this question about is there life elsewhere? There's good science you can do to kind of, you know, estimate and convince yourself. You know, is it reasonable? What kinds of planets might it be on? What might life look like? That's good science stuff. But I think the reason I'm attracted to it is because of these kind of very human philosophical questions that are associated with it. Shane, thank you so much for joining us today. I've learned so much from this interview, and I'm sure you've given our listeners some really interesting things to chew on. Thank you for coming and chatting with me. Well, friends, that brings us to the end of our show. Once again, we want to give a big thank you to our special guest, Dr. Shane Larson, and the Center for Talent Development for making this all possible. If you're interested in learning more about Dr. Larson's research, feel free to keep up with his blog posts on Right Science. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Backpack Podcast. Until next time. Thank you.